You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Hello, everyone, and welcome to RevOps FM. Today, we are chatting with Jen Igartua, CEO of GoNimbly, which is a RevOps consultancy for scaling businesses. I have a consulting background myself, but my agency experience was much more marketing operations focused and also strongly tech focused. And so I was really interested in speaking to someone who had built a consulting model specifically for revenue operations and also that had a strong business and strategic emphasis as well as a tech focus. And in that frame of mind, I came across GoNimbly's website and found the content about their methodology just really thoughtful and interesting. And so I reached out to Jen and she was good enough to agree to spend some time with me. So Jen, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to chat with you today. Thank you. That's so fun. I think we have a very similar background because I started off my career as a marketing automation consultant at Blue Wolf, which got later bought by IBM. And my main focus was around technology. And it was only through realizing that whatever I did in the marketing automation platform, it didn't matter if I didn't really think about what would happen in the CRM and how they might consume the information. Like I can change my lead scoring program all day long, but if I don't get sales to work my leads, who cares? And I had that aha moment pretty early on. And so then I got really obsessed with sales and marketing alignment. And why would these two teams that are seemingly so aligned be the ones at each other's throats? Like, why aren't we just mad at finance? And then that's how it led us to start Go Nimbly. Our original tagline was unifying the business stack before we had the language around revenue operations. And, you know, we would focus on data silos and tech silos, like things that were keeping the systems from working together, and then elevated that into process silos and people silos and everything that it takes these teams to work. And I've started using the language that I think helps a lot of people because I think revenue operations gets a little fuzzy. Everybody's talking about it. And sometimes you talk about something too much, it becomes annoying. And want that to happen is that, you know, ultimately we're trying to unify the go-to-market teams. If I could rebrand this term, I might call it go-to-market operations. That's our focus. It's how do I make them super successful and how do I make them have these incredible peak experiences with our customers so we can maximize the amount of money, so we can do more with less reps, all that good stuff that an operational focus does. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC, that's K-N-A-K, and get a special offer just for my listeners. Precisely as you said, because terms are generally very fuzzy, very impenetrable, there's no universal definitions in our field, is what RevOps means to you. And I've heard unifying the go-to market teams. And then the second piece to that to me is kind of like, well, in what ways? Where does the mandate start and stop from your point of view for RevOps? Yeah, such a good question. So if I can A to see that question, I'll just give a metaphor. It's worked out, especially for teams that are feeling like everybody's got a different definition. Ultimately, if our company was making a movie and that's the outcome, right? We want a really wonderful movie that kills it at the box office. It's an incredible experience. We win all the awards. It's the best. Our go-to-market team are actors. And as revenue operators, 
we want to make sure that they have all the tools, all the enablement, all the scripts, you know, the setup, everything that they need to show up on set and kill it. And, you know, ideally, what are the directors? Some RevOps teams might not be there yet. You know, we might just be printing out scripts and hoping for the best and we might not have everything, you know, designed and we might not be, quite frankly, stepping up to the promise of revenue operations. But if we were, we would be creating that really incredible environment for this really great movie to be made. And we would have a strategic say in that, right? Like the directors are not just taking orders from the actors. Like we're truly a partnership. Love it. And I also love speaking in metaphors. So this is right up my alley. I agree with everything you've said. I think the tension that I've often seen either in environments that I've worked in, clients, or just in speaking to peers out in the marketplace is maybe RevOps people see themselves or aspire to be in that director role. Often they're not. Often they're... (laughs) In the worst case scenario, they're the people like bringing the coffee and lunch to the actors and maybe sometimes somewhere in the middle, like assistant producer or something like that. And so how have you seen with your clients helping them step into those shoes and guiding that change if it is a change for those companies? Oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite questions. Let me take it in in two angles because there's one, the maturity of the person and where you are in your career and what you want. And there's like the maturity of the function, for lack of a better word, within a company. And I think at the individual level, Here's the aspiration that everyone should have. The people that are currently working in revenue operations teams, if you are at a company that is really pushing the boundaries, growing and doing well, like you are set up to be the next CRO. If you're that person that's aspiring to do that, you're in a good place because you're really gaining all the skills that it takes. There's not a lot of great CROs out there. It's just, it's new. We're learning and there's a lot that needs to come together for that. But the opportunity is there. So if I'm an individual that is just making coffee, but I know I've got the skills to do more, right? You might just be at the level of coffee, but you're not, right? If you are someone that I know I can do more, they're just not listening or I'm everything's on fire. There's so much tech debt. I don't have the space. I don't have the space to do deep work. If you're that person, you have to sort of analyze where you're at and where the business is at. If you're working at a company that doesn't quote unquote get revenue operations and you're being told that like as a team, you have to convince everybody of your value, et cetera. That's so hard, especially if you're mid to junior level, you're not going to probably make a huge impact there and your job's probably not going to change unless there's some bigger thing going on that, that you have hope in. In that front, you probably want to leave. If you do see the light, if like if the organization does care and it's just that you're transitioning, you're on this kind of journey, then there's skills that that team needs to do. Some of the basic ones like are do you have do you have the authority and ability to say no? Do you actually have an intake process? Like are things coming through if they're urgent in something like a case or if it's a project, is there an intake process where the whole business looks at it and and decides whether or not to do it? Um, and then the big one is. Is your work and the work coming to your desk actually aligned to what the C-level and the executives care about? Because if it's not, like, I think we've all been at a place where we've gotten a lot of things, right? Like all of a sudden I could have a week where I've got 20 requests and I don't get to five of them. Probably had the experience where like maybe no one follows up on those five. It's like, because urgency feels that way, right? And it's not always important. And it's really hard to find the like urgent, not important stuff. And having that tracked, really understanding and ability to say no, knowing how you're aligned to what the executives care about will essentially start to give you space. Because if you're somebody with good skills who's being pointed at the wrong place, you probably just don't have the space to say no and the space to prioritize the right work. I agree completely. 
if the limitations being placed on you or the company and the company dynamics, is that a battle you want to fight? Sometimes it is. Maybe there could be a scenario where that's gratifying, but I agree. Ultimately, sometimes you have to pick a different lane. I think sometimes there is a self-limiting mindset that can happen. We kind of refine ourselves into craftspeople. I want things to be scalable and well-documented and beautiful, but does it work? Is it having a revenue impact? You know, well, that's marketing's problem or that sales problem. I've seen those attitudes expressed. I think they are harmful to our discipline. To me, it seems part of the crux is, are you actually caring about the revenue impact of the work that you're doing and then making decisions accordingly versus just, you know, playing a kind of game of prioritization with people that are asking you for things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're touching on a lot of things like growth mindset is definitely important, right? And making sure that you're somebody who is, it's not necessarily a confidence, but knowing that People don't have it figured out. Like we talk about revenue operations or RevOps as if we're comparing ourselves to these rock stars that just know it all. A lot of this is new and a lot of this is figuring it out and believing in yourself that you can apply yourself to figure it out or get yourself the skill set that you need or get yourself the support that you need. So there's definitely that that's that's getting into individuals way. So I want to turn to a concept that is super interesting to me. I know you did a webinar yesterday about this idea of RevOps as a product. I've came to this idea a while ago as well, based on my first experience in RevOps before the term existed, but I was basically the Marketo admin and I was the Salesforce admin. So I was kind of doing all the things. And I sat close to the product management team and I was like, oh, this is really similar. Like I have these teams, they have requirements, they want features and I can deliver on those features and I'm making them super happy. And you know, this is a great feeling. That was a, sort of my entryway into operations. I've seen you on LinkedIn talking about this point. Well, who then is the customer for the product? Is it the the GTM teams? They have needs. We fulfill those needs and then enable them to do their best work. Or are we still thinking externally about the customer? I've struggled with this notion because I think there's probably an element of both. I want to hear about your evolution on this point and what you think about it now. Totally. And I've actually kind of, I don't know if changed my mind is, but I've had a reality check, if nothing more. So it's really easy to sit, especially as a consultant, we build frameworks, right? And best practices and what we should do and what it should look like. And it's very easy to sort of sit on the sidelines and be um, someone that says, hey, you're here to maximize revenue. You care only about the customer and the customer experience. And you have to align yourself with that and become this really strategic function and say no to you know things that don't matter. What it doesn't take into consideration is... Your users are still the go-to-market team. They're the ones that are adopting your technology. They're the ones that are going to either do the work the way that you want them to or not. They're the ones that if it's very frustrating or confusing, aren't inputting data in a clean way and it's causing you problems later on. And so I've started to switch my tune a little bit and realize that actually enabling and maximizing the experience of your go-to-market team will also in turn create a really great customer experience. So my outcome is still the same. Like I'm still aligned to the things that the CEO cares about. I'm still aligned to what my customer cares about. I'm still digging for the biggest gaps and the biggest places that I can maximize revenue. But I can do that through the go-to-market team. I can care about their, quite frankly, their happiness, their ability to adopt, their biggest problems, the things that are getting in the way of them. Because if I can open those doors and make that better, I'm essentially giving them space to be better salespeople. So I'm still after the same outcome but I'm now prioritizing the employee experience or the go-to-market experience more. And that's a recent change. I have done some stints within RevOps teams and realizing how important it is. 
so funny because in, in some ways my mind has traversed the opposite path where I started out really focused on these are the users, they're responsible for delivering these results, we're responsible for understanding their needs and delivering against them. And then I think something that shifted my mind a bit is in my current organization, operations has a much stronger leadership role than in other organizations I've worked in. And there's a real expectation that ops is a coach, that there's a constructive tension between ops and the teams that they support to challenge results, to challenge the way that we're doing things, which I'm not suggesting is excluded by your definition. But is it kind of a meet in the middle sort of thing? By, by which I mean, let's say marketing wants to do something and it's like, this just doesn't make sense. Like the strategy is no good. I don't think it's going to work. Do we still deliver on it or do we push back? Yeah. I mean, you should push back, right? Like at the end of the day, your responsibility is to align with the company more than your department. And that's hard to do. So yeah, if you're seeing that somebody's giving you a request for something that isn't going to create any impact, you need to raise that. To your original question of like, is it both? It, it is. But I like to look at other companies and see what's their messaging. And, and ultimately, especially if we're thinking about the steal like an artist thought process, which is what can we take from product teams that they do really well? Or what can we take from engineering teams that they do really well? They've been around longer than we have. And if we think about any company and you go to their website and you look at what their tagline is, that's essentially what their purpose is, why they exist. They're not going to give you features and they're not going to talk about you as a user and what they're enabling you to do. They're not going to say, I'm going to create a seamless you know, experience for you always. I have a few up here actually I'm looking at, like Zendesk, it's unlock the power of customer experience. For PandaDoc, they're like maximize revenue. For Apollo, it's find and convert the perfect lead. And so they, they know what their outcome is. They know what their value is and, and why they exist. And for revenue operations, it's similar. Like we don't exist to make the salesperson's job easier. Nobody hired us to say, hey, the reps, their job's too hard and we want them to do it faster. They're saying this is a strategic function that's going to make us more money. It could be increased productivity, but it's got a different outcome. It might be that we're moving towards being a profitable company. Or you might be doing scale work that I call. Like You might not even be thinking about the customer that much. And, and this is um, an interesting take. If your company is aligned to a different inflection point, so imagine your company's going to IPO in a year. Your work is probably going to be all IPO work. You're unlikely to be thinking much about the customer in that year because you need to make sure all your revenue data is auditable and we can get there. And that's me aligning myself to the C-level. And so my point is we have to know what the purpose of our team is. Like, why were we hired? Why do we exist? Is it to get to the next inflection point with confidence? Is it to superpower your go-to-market team to close bigger deals faster? Is it to delight our customers to create a seamless experience from lead to renewal in order to maximize more money from them? It's having that clarity and that will align your work. And then ultimately, in order to get there, it's my belief that you have to make the go-to-market team's processes really simple. It allows me to onboard people faster. It will increase you know, each person's carry capacity. It will give me valid data to do more interesting insights. And so it's through them that we get a lot of benefit. That makes a whole lot of sense when you put it that way. And it's true. I guess there is a time where you could think about the customer experience when actually at that phase of the business, they need you to be thinking about something else. Yeah. And I think that's my big takeaway. It's like our function is still supposed to be making value for the company and we need to know what the company wants to do. And then we can do that job. This is a tangential question, but I'm just curious, to what extent does GoNumbly interact with the marketing function as well as sales and CS? Oh, tons. I would probably say the order, and this is like GoNumbly, but probably any RevOps team, the order in which you start 
doing the work and then the order in which it gets prioritized, it's typically sales, marketing, and then CS. CS does a little bit of the redheaded stepchild. And I love redheads, but that's where the money is. That's like the ultimately the amount of money that's spent in operations for each of them and how the work gets prioritized. But we'll work with all three. CS is getting more attention now and they are getting more operational projects and more integrated, but they're the most siloed. Part of the driver for that question is you've maybe seen the meme. I think it's a Scooby-Doo meme where they pull the mask off the person and in the first frame, it's like rev ops. And then you pull the mask off and it's like sales ops, you know, it's sure. just, just kind of sales ops rebranded. So it sounds like the people that you're attracting are ready for and willing to have that point of view on their operations. Yeah. And it comes in different charity levels. And actually it can change during life of a company. When you start out, if you are a early stage company, you don't have to worry about this so much because you're a team of one. Like you are unsiloed because you're one person. You can prioritize the most uh, important work. You don't have to communicate with a bunch of different teams in order for everyone to be aligned. And it's as you get bigger that these silos will start to get created. And they're actually perfectly normal and actually a sign of success in some ways. You only get silos when you hire a bunch of people, when you have new teams getting created, when you start to get specialists in place. You know, it's, it's really the outcome of fast growth because humans are very good at aligning vertically with their teams. Like you don't usually say, oh, the business analysts are siloed with the directors. Like we're very good at aligning within our teams. We're just bad across them. And so as soon as you start to pop into a lot of different teams, you'll start to feel it. And this can happen multiple times. You can bring them back together and it will happen again because again, humans just know how to work better in smaller groups and vertically, they know how to align themselves to their boss. So this is going to continue happening and you have to fight it. There's different ways in which a great revenue operations team will show itself. I think we talk a lot about the org chart. It's like, hey, these teams need to be rolling up to the same person and talking to each other and aligned. But I don't find that these teams don't talk to each other. It's not that I go to a company and go, wow, you guys aren't talking to each other. It's typically coming from something else. It's There's a lot of roadblocks in your way, whether it might be right from the top, there's not enough direction. We don't know how to prioritize. It might be that there's a lot of technology silos even, like our platforms aren't connected. The data is not flowing into the right places, a slew of other things. And so it's important to try to pull those things apart and really understand do I have a problem where I'm not aligned with marketing ops and sales ops? Like, are we not talking? Is that like really what's going on? Or do we not, are we not prioritizing the same things? Because you can fix things. I'm, I'm a big proponent that like, yeah, an org chart gives you clarity, but that's not what we're doing here. People, like you said, they tend to orient themselves to their boss. It's kind of about how power and authority flows in the organization, if we want to look at it like that. And if I diagnose causes of alignment that I've experienced, yeah, again, it's not necessarily because we're not talking. You can talk, but right. if sales ops is getting marching orders from a sales leader and they want to do one thing and marketing ops getting marching orders, the marketing leader wants to right. do another thing and there's no unifying force. I find in our company, our COO is a unifying force. And even though I don't actually report to him or the only ops team that reports into a functional unit, there's still a really thick dotted line. And that provides that someone who can come in and be like, hold on a sec, like, let's bring everything together. Let's stop doing X, start doing Y. Is that the missing piece or a missing piece in your point of view? Like some, someone or some function that can bring it together? Yeah, that's ideal. And it's not something that everybody has, but 
that's one way to mitigate that problem. And I've done a lot of reading on systems thinking. And one of the things that has stayed with me is every system has its downfall. Like it does not matter, especially complicated, right? Like solutions are different than systems. Like a solution is I need this number to go in and this number to come out. And it always does the same thing. When you're with people, it becomes this complex problem and you need a system to grow with it. And it's going to have failure points because it's very complicated. And so when we talk about organizing teams and aligning them and their workflow and how they meet and how they convene and how they learn, it's very complex. And so what you need to do is figure out what's my failure point across my team and then how can I come up with strategies to mitigate it? And the one that you just said, which is we have two bosses that are giving different marching orders to two different teams and those teams are going to do what they do. And sometimes they're against each other then yeah, we need those two bosses to have a better relationship and align together or they need to roll up to somebody else that's making those marching orders, right? We're mitigating a problem that we've got and creating a system around it. And there's a lot of ways to slice it. When we talk about our best practice, yeah, we want that singular leader because it's one of the easiest ways to solve it. I have to get your systems thinking reading list. Yeah. You can share it because it's a subject of interest to me too. On a switch topics, you talked about this concept of of durability testing and 3VC. Mm-hmm. And where it's of interest to me is it speaks to the point of what should we do? You know, sometimes there's a twin problem. You have so many requests and so many fires. And we always say, we'd like sometimes mm-hmm. to do strategic work. And they're like, all right, what strategic work should we do? And it's like, right. how do I actually be sure that I'm doing the right things and not just something that's interesting to me? And this seems to be one one answer to that problem. So maybe you can talk us through that framework. That's all part of gap first thinking. And so this is what's a funny thing that happens with operations teams. You already have a backlog somewhere, right? You've got a, a bunch of requests that have come in, ideas you have, a bunch of problems you found. Maybe it lives in a Google sheet. Maybe you've got a tool. Maybe it's in your notepad. And typically when a team goes and says, hey, we need a roadmap or, or we need to plan for next quarter, they'll pull up that list and then the team will brainstorm more ideas. And then they'll create an even bigger list, which is crazy because you already had so much work, but okay, let's brainstorm more work because maybe we missed something. And then we'll give it some sort of framework. Maybe we'll do the urgent versus important framework or we'll do impact versus effort and we'll figure out what we need to work on and we'll put it up against some months or quarters and aha, here we have what we've worked on. The problem with that is it's starting with like ideas and features and work and it's not talking about the gap or the problem or the inflection point that we're going after. So I think one of the things that any team can do like literally tomorrow, especially if you're starting to plan for next year, is do the opposite. Start with being like, okay, what's the outcome? Are we doubling our sales team by next quarter? Are we going to IPO? Do we have new products launching? And find out what these like big milestones or outcomes are going to be and then what's getting in our way of that work. And that needs to be prioritized first. Having that clarity gives you an ability to look at something and be like, well, that's not important. I'm not going to do that work. And without it, you end up prioritizing things that you're speculating will have impact. It's like impact on what if you don't have the outcome that you're going after really clear. The ideas of durability testing and 3VC are ways to find. Like if somebody just said, hey, our goal is to increase conversion from MQL to pipeline, whatever you want to call it, SQL. We need to get X number of new logos, whatever it might be. I might not know what levers to pull. I might be like kind of like a deer in headlights. At that point, you should stress test your team. You should pull reports and try to figure out 3VC is just just if you're ever stuck reporting, it's volume, value, velocity, and conversion. They're really the four things that you can do. You can 
increase the value of opportunities that you close to go up market sell more. You can increase the velocity, do it faster. You can increase the conversion, the number that go, or you can do more of them. And so those are really the four levels that will allow you to create more qualified pipeline. And I have to figure out which one of those is getting in the way. I can do that through reporting, or if I'm just not sure, I can do that by putting myself in the customer's shoes. I can submit a form and try to figure out if it takes forever for someone to call me. I can do a rep ride and sit with them. I can interview customers. And that's really the product manager mindset of saying, all right, I'm going to get as close to my customer and my outcome to figure out how to solve this problem, as opposed to taking feature requests and saying yes to what my bosses say. And so those things that you just described, are those examples of durability tests within your framework? Durability in the sense of you try to experience a part of the process and see how durable it is. Does it hold up to scrutiny? Is that what it means? Yeah. I also use the word stress testing. We've all had a moment where we're like, oh crap, our form wasn't working. Or wow, the routing was broken. It's a really easy way. Just go and submit information and see it go all the way through to feel confident that your system is working how it's intended. There's also things that we can take from engineering teams, unit tests that run through the experience that you're expecting, you know, all the time to find errors. There's automated ways to do this. But if you have a moment where you're thinking about your customer experience, you're like, I don't really know. Go ahead and just become the customer. The notion of gap first thinking is very elegant and I think simple and intuitively correct. It does seem difficult in some cases to implement in practice. I don't know if that's been your experience or not, but I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in others. Maybe it's just we become enamored of shiny objects. Maybe it's like you said, it's the overwhelm and you just start thinking about how to manage your stakeholders instead of zooming back out and just focusing on the business. Why is that mindset hard? It's 100% hard. And I will admittedly say that the idea that operators have time to step back and audit their work all the time, like it's not realistic. And I don't claim that it's realistic. The times when I've seen companies do that kind of work is really at the place where there's a hypothesis. So a best practice would be that we have the automation and the bandwidth to be stress testing our essentially our product, quote unquote, if we're building a go-to-market platform together. But we don't. And so instead, typically what happens is you have a theory, there's a gap that you expect, like maybe you've actually seen it a little bit broken. So you're like, wow, this lead got routed to the wrong place. You're essentially stress testing and trying to figure it out when you're auditing that piece. It'd be great if we could do it at a broader space. And I see it usually surrounding a project or an initiative as opposed to what I would love to do, which is like have it happen all the time. So if you're hearing this and going, we're not doing that, uh, most people aren't, it's okay. It's a best practice that is, quite frankly, really hard to reach, but you can incorporate it when you're doing projects or, again, have a hypothesis. The difficulty that I think we have, and this is a little bit less RevOps and more humans and knowledge workers, I'm very passionate about finding focus at work. Like, What does it mean to do deep work and create an environment where I can do that? Because where we are living right now, most of us are hopping on our email and we have a bunch of email. And we're getting Slack pings all day and we're addicted to our devices and Slack and iMessage and whatever it is to the point where there's something ridiculous. Like we switch tabs like every 17 seconds. So I don't know if you've ever experienced where you're like writing something and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to go check Slack real quick. And all of a sudden you're in a rabbit hole of Slack. Yep. That's the, I think one of the biggest things impeding knowledge workers from doing meaningful work. You can't do meaningful work 15 minutes at a time. And so how do you create an environment for you and your employees and your team? 
to have the space to do deep work. Engineers really protect their time, right? They protect their bandwidth and they protect their meeting time because they know this. There's an organization called caveday.org. And that's a big thing that they talk about is how do we change our relationship with work? so that we can create space for ourselves to do deep work. One of our clients, Clockwise, also has automation for your calendar to move your meetings so that you have more focus blocks and you can do that deep work. I think that's one of the biggest things that's impeding revenue operators from doing meaningful work and investigative work and finding the why and finding the gap and being really confident that the work that they're doing is important work is because it's impossible to do 15 minutes between meetings. I think everyone can agree with that. It's so true. And even my organization, we really prioritize that. And we try to be low meeting, not no meeting. That's impossible, but low meeting. Even then, it can be hard. And it's why I often find I do my best work at night, which, you know, not everyone wants to be working at night, but I'll often work out in the afternoon when my brain is tired and catch up a bit at night and nobody's around. And it's this magical time where all of a sudden things can happen and you're not getting interrupted. Yeah, that is the magic that we need to bring into the day. It's also interesting because we do it to ourselves. And I started going nimbly, I was doing the 60 hour weeks, right? And just throwing myself at every problem. And I had to kind of realize most of the time there's not a panic or an urgency or an actual bug that is impeding work. Most of the time, somebody just wants a different report or a quick feature and we're jumping on it because it feels good. It feels good for me to be like, yeah, I added that lead source. You're all set. They're happy. You're happy. You got something done. You got a dopamine hit. You don't get the same dopamine hit from doing hard work. You don't get that same thing from doing something that takes a long time. And so we have to start prioritizing and wanting to feel the high that you get from focus, right? From like flow state and trying to create more space for that and prioritize that. I see on your website, you use the terms machine work versus innovation work. Good friend of mine, Paul Wilson, he talks about the same thing. He uses the term run the business versus change the business. It means to me the same thing, but you need both. Obviously, like you need where you're doing and you're operating the machine that you've built, and then you need where you're disrupting and changing and implementing. How do you find that balance gets established? Where do you find the right line within a team or within an individual's time? So machine work or business as usual work. And I actually think this is a really great exercise to do. And I really, I think we can, right? Sometimes we talk about these frameworks and these ideals and it's really hard to get there. But I think this one has a lot of value. You'll learn a lot from your team and you'll be able to have insights to change your team here, which is how do you know what it takes to run the business? What is this business as usual, all the work that you have to get done within a quarter, all the support that your team needs to just get their work done? Can you quantify that so that you know how, how expensive is it to run the business? And what kind of team do you need in order to do that? Because it's a huge expectation setting for the company to say, hey, it takes me two and a half people and $300,000 to like run the team without any new features or innovation. I need to know that so when I get asks, I can go, well, I can't because I, I can't deprioritize the business as usual work. That's machine work. That's what keeps our sellers selling. That's the you know quarterly reviews I have to do. That's the planning meetings I have to go to. That's all the cases we have to get done. Whatever you know your cadence is, there's stuff you're doing daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly that you can define and give it a really rough scope. Don't overdo it. You can just be like, this takes one week, one day, one month. That's going to help you figure out the shape of your organization. Tag each of those kinds of work with how senior those are. Is that something an analyst can do or do you need some you know, strategic resource or senior resource or specialist to get it done? And then on the other side, it's the innovation work that you hear a lot of teams feel like they can't get to. 
And that's the new features, for lack of a better word. That's us doing the work that it takes to transform your business. It might be you've identified that renewals and renewal management is in a really bad place. And so it's automating renewal creation, bringing in churn signals, like it's the fun work. And you need to have your business as usual work covered so that you have space to do that. You may have a biased answer to this question, but I want to talk about outsourcing RevOps or bringing on agency support. I'm curious the pros and cons that you see. Okay, I have a somewhat biased answer, but it comes under my understanding that I'm most successful with customers that have RevOps leadership. It's harder for an outside consultant to come in and enact a lot of change and enact a lot of cultural change without at least a person that also cares and is shepherding you through it. So I often advise that that person person exists. And I believe in this role. I believe in this function. I believe companies should invest in it. So I'm somewhat biased because I don't typically, especially for a mid-sized company, we work with larger companies, maybe at a series A, you might outsource the whole function for now, but you will inevitably hire for it. So by no means am I saying outsource the whole thing. There's a lot of our clients use us in very different ways. So on one front, they might use us for a big project that's a spike. So they're not going to hire to implement Service Cloud. They're not going to hire two and a half people for six months to get it done. And so that might be something that company comes to us and says, hey, can you spin up a team to help get this done? So those are pretty easy. The reason why you might do it, the pro is you don't have to hire and fire. <laughs> you know, it's a one-time project. It's, it takes specialty. So you don't need that skill set forever. I don't need three people that know Service Cloud. I kind of just need half. And so... From that front, it gives you that flexibility. We also have clients of ours that use us for work they don't want to do. So one of the things that we've been talking about, the pain of revenue operations, is you're stuck with cases and that work that at some point burns you out. You can outsource that. So a lot of our customers have us do a lot of their frontline, a lot of their cases, and we escalate the ones that need a project or need extra hands. But we're that first line of defense. The pro of doing that is if you don't have an organization large enough where somebody that's in that analyst position has a place to get promoted and grow, they're going to get sick of that work in 12 to 18 months. It's kind of similar to like the SDR problem. They're going to get bored and leave and then you're going to lose all this knowledge and capabilities. So sometimes it's like the work that your team doesn't want to do and that you don't have a career path for. And then there's obviously expertise, right? You just don't have those kinds of skill sets. You want flexibility. You have a projects that need marketing ops and sales ops and engineering and architecture and project management. So you can hire a firm that has all those skill sets and you can be swapping resources throughout the year. So the biggest reason is flexibility on that front or expertise that you don't have. My experience with respect to needing an internal leader has been identical to yours. I wouldn't say the word impossible, but I would say it's very difficult to be successful if you don't have someone, almost like a champion in a sales cycle, someone who you're still working for them, but they're also working to sell other people in the company on your behalf in that case. And in this case, it's kind of like they're translating for the CRO or the CMO, or they're hurting the cats internally, things that you're not necessarily very well equipped to do with a C-suite leader that maybe just doesn't have a lot of time for you as a consultant. I think that's a mission critical piece. Do you think as a consultant, you have a benefit in that you are not so enmeshed in the politics and the unique things of each company. So you have this perspective and you also get to do things cyclically. So you bring that expertise. The downside is, of course, you're on three, four or five accounts. You have a challenge of understanding and caring as much about that business as an internal team will do. How do you balance those? You know, there's a pro and a con there, it seems to me. Totally. I, the big pro is I am not trying to get promoted. Like you're so removed from the inner workings that 
you have a clarity that you can't have from inside. A lot of that comes because I'm not affected by politics. I'm not affected by somebody getting promoted that I didn't. I'm not trying to go after that. And so that's removed. And that certainly gives you a different kind of trust. When I say I think a company should do something, I'm not holding on to my tech. I'm not holding on to my role. And so I think that there's inherently a value in that. When you think about organizations and consultants and the bad part you highlighted, yes, they don't work you know, within the company. So you might think like, oh, are they aligned with the ethos of the company, the culture, the outcome? I find that my consultants are, and we've done a lot of work to not have the amount of context switching that you're talking about because we're working with a little bit of larger companies. The deals tend to be larger and nobody's on any more than four accounts at any given time. So we just do basically quarter time staffing. So you can be 10, 20 or 40 hours on an account. And so that allows you to not be working on, you know, 18 accounts at once. That all depends on the kind of company. If you're a consultancy that's going after Series A companies and they're only buying 10 hours a month, it's harder to do. Again, I'm obsessed with focus. So it's like, how do you create focus for your teams? You know, how do you make sure that they're not context switching so much that they're wasting time and that clients aren't getting good work? And that starts to mitigate some of those risks. And that's why you need, I think you need a blend of both. You will need to spike. You will need specialists. You will want outside counsel. You know, get that from a great partner but also builds your team and your skill sets and it's more cost effective internally. And a lot of times people will push, oh, but we want to do it internally because we want to own that knowledge. Your employees will leave. So just make sure that you're balancing out, putting all of that internally versus your consulting partner is documenting everything, has multiple people with knowledge. And I actually think that we protect knowledge a lot when there's churn within customers. You've been at Go Nimble, I think, seven, eight years, maybe even a bit longer. I was at an agency for seven years and I was the eighth employee, was with it through that journey to about 50 or 60. And then they were acquired by a much larger agency. And that's when I left. So I've played that game and I'm curious what you found challenges and highlights along the way and your experience going through that. Okay. So when we started Go Nimbly, I think the biggest thing was I had been a consultant and was just like, great, I can do this. And at first, and I encourage people to do this. At first, it was kind of glorified contracting, right? I'd find a client. I would spend 20 hours a week on that client, bill them. And I was like feeling like I was running a consulting company, but really there were just a few of us billing hours to clients. And then we start scaling it. And I wanted to do like, I kept pushing, like doing things differently, like selling services, like this kind of rev ups as a service, like monthly subscription and change the way that we build hours and trying to change the process of our consultants. I had a kind of a reality check of services has been around a long time. People have figured out how to run professional services firms. And I needed to learn from those companies. So I started reading and following a lot of people that knew how to run successful services companies. There's a book called The Boutique. That's really amazing. There's another one called Managing the Professional Services Firm. A very, very cool title. And it talks about all the things that it takes to run a successful services business because it's not just the skills and the people. There's so much that it takes to run that smoothly so that the processes for my consultants are really streamlined and they don't think about billing hours and that you're not paying for our internal bullshit. You're paying for outcomes. You have to think about the shape of your organization and how you're going to incentivize your consultants and your partners. How are you going to sell? And this has all been figured out by a lot of very smart people. You can innovate within them, but I think I was spending a lot of time trying to innovate on stuff that 
didn't need innovation. In all the companies that you're dealing with, what innovations in go-to-market are you seeing? I think a lot about that, you know, like there's inbound and outbound and nearbound and partner-led and community-led and product-led. So what's kind of cool on the street these days and what are you seeing work well? I think we are definitely in the PLG hype space. And so we're doing a lot of work with our customers around product-led sales and what that can look like. I mean, we work with very impressive SaaS companies. I won't say who's who, but we've worked with Twilio and Zendesk and Intercom and PagerDuty. And I'm very, very proud of all of these logos. And what we're really focused on and a couple of things that have changed is one, in this PLG cycle, how do I elevate customers who are ready to buy that might be active users or have churn risks? How do I get that information you know, as signals into the sales and CS team? So that I might be automatically creating opportunities or automatically creating, you know, churn risks so they can execute their playbooks and actually creating a really, really tight machine on that. That's been really exciting. And we have a couple of our customers going through that process right now. And then I would add the other thing is obviously there's a huge focus on data and how to make sure that we've got data flowing through all of our systems. When I started on my career and Justin, you probably had the same thing. The idea was your source of truth was Salesforce and that's gone like that. Nobody cares about putting every single piece of data inside of Salesforce. And instead we're working with data warehouses and pushing you know data into the systems, like just the data that's necessary into the system that it needs to be in and making sure that that machine is working. And we've been doing a lot of work around that kind of data cleanliness and customer data processes. Jen, this is super interesting. I love your thinking. I love learning about what you're doing. Go nimbly. Sounds like you've developed a really tight ship. Really grateful for you spending time with me today. Hey everyone, I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.